This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button motion stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Welcome, everyone, once again to Evidence for Faith. This is the radio show where we teach you how to defend Christianity by giving you the evidences and the arguments that show that it's true. Why defend Christianity? Because it's the 2,000-year leap forward in human advancement, provides the moral groundwork for us to live free in liberty without oppression by government, and it provides prosperity that comes from that liberty that has been unparalleled and unmatched in human history. It also has the potential to provide the unity that can unite all human beings in global peace and trust. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And today, Keith, I just wanted to share a couple of things with the, um, the listening uh, audience. Uh, you can find our website uh, on evidenceforfaith.com. That's the number four, evidence, the number four, faith.com. You can also find our previous podcasts on Facebook as well as iTunes. So you can go there and actually download previous audio files. And Keith, we're coming up to about our 100th show. We've been on the we're radio We're in the 90s, now, yep. On the radio now for over two years. And uh, I have a little tab- tabulation of our most popular shows. And number one, for the first time in many months is Intelligent Design. Yeah, that really jumped up. We've had over a 1,000 hits on that podcast. And that was a podcast that aired on September 8th, 2009. Uh, Second is Fulfilled Prophecy, which was the number one leader there for a number of months in a row. Uh, Number uh, three on the list was uh, Jesus, uh, a smart individual. Right. Was he the smartest man who ever lived? Mm -hmm. And then Reliability of Scripture is number four, and that was um, dated 516 2010. Mm-hmm. So we've had a lot of great shows, and it just shows some of the uh, what topics are popular. So we'll be readdressing some of those. If people are more interested in those shows, we'll make more of those available. So we'll go more in depth into intelligent design and future shows. I've got a couple news items, and we're really pressed for time because we have a big topic and we have a guest today. So I just have to go over some of these because I don't think they should wait much longer. So we'll just briefly talk about them. There are several news items that I thought really uh, needed to be mentioned. One is that there was a study out about the ice melting. You know, we've talked about the global warming hoax in the past and uh, showed that the ice melting at the North Pole is actually half of what uh, was thought before. So, uh, again, just shows that, uh, you know, It is not happening like they said it was, and we've been through that uh, ad infinitum, but just another point that came up uh, in our favor recently. Another thing that came up was showing that uh, green jobs, for every green job that's created, it costs the private sector two regular jobs. So that was a a very interesting study, which, again, I'd love to go into the details of it, but for limited time. We'll just have to leave that as uh, the headlines ran it. 
And then the third one is really interesting because I've been seeing on some atheist websites how they promote the fact that evolution can explain morality. Well, there was a an article about a major researcher in evolutionary psychology looking at how monkeys and other primates develop morals who was accused of by his the institution he works at for faking his evidence and he's been duping the grant research writers of thousands and thousands of dollars telling them that he could prove where morals came from and he's been falsifying his data so there's uh, you know, you have to be careful just because somebody is a scientist doesn't mean that they're telling you the truth or that they even know the truth. A little twist of fate there on uh, his his moral principles. Uh, I'd also like to remind our listening audience that this show is brought to you in part by uh, Grace Community Church in Waterworks, uh, uh, New Jersey. You can visit them on their website at um, aplaceforgrace.com. Today we have an interesting guest. Uh, I'd like everyone to welcome uh, Peter Boyce. Hello, Peter. Hello. Peter is going to be running uh, for uh, the Constitution Party for the um, Second U.S. House of Representatives, Second District. And I'd That's like correct. to welcome you uh, to the show, Peter. And I guess the burning question is, with the Tea Party gaining momentum, especially after what happened in uh, Delaware this past week, uh, tell us what it is, what's happening in this country that uh, makes the Tea Party so uh, so um, attractive all well, of a sudden? Well, people, parents, business owners, they see what's happening, the social fabric of America coming apart. Uh, they're concerned for their children, their grandchildren, and that, uh, coupled with their personal sense of responsibility, has brought them out of their homes, away from the television sets, to see what they can do. You know, they feel compelled to respond, to do something. And uh, what the Tea Party movement is doing, it's affording them an opportunity to come together and learn. They're gaining the education that they didn't have and uh, the education that congressmen need to have to understand what the Constitution says. You might say that uh, our Congress lies bewildered in a state of amnesia brought on by a severe case of scurvy. <laughs> and as we know, uh, scurvy is the result of a vitamin C deficiency, in this case vitamin C standing for constitution. Very good. I could have guessed there. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. The, uh, the critical issues tearing apart America, the social fabric, endangering our national security, bankrupting the American people can be resolved quickly if we elect statesmen who return to the timeless principles of freedom embodied in the Declaration of Independence and our U.S. Constitution. It's just that simple. They need to honor their oath of the Constitution. Constitution, like the Ten Commandments, it's an absolute. When they swear an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution, it's not uh, if and when it's uh, politically correct or if and when it's convenient. No, it's an absolute. Every word, every letter of the Constitution needs to be obeyed, just as with the Ten Commandments. All right. Now, Peter, you're running against an incumbent who's been popular won a lot of elections uh, in a row. Right. What's the problem with him? Why should we not vote for him? Why should we vote for you? What's what's the problem? What's What are the issues? Well, uh, Frank Lobiondo's a nice guy. I like him. I consider him a friend. Uh, but he's not a constitutionalist. I, uh, My wife and I were talking about it the other night. You know, what to say when somebody asks, well, what's the difference between you and Frank Lobiondo? And uh, when, what immediately came to mind was, well, 
he sometimes votes the way I would. Right. But I always vote the way I would. <laughs> and I would vote according to the Constitution 100% of the time. Because uh-huh. it's an absolute. When you swear an oath before God to uphold and defend the Constitution, I mean, that's serious. In the end, you don't stand before political party bosses or the major media or special interests or lobbyists. You stand before God and give an account of yourself. That's the difference. I fear God. And what what any specific issue that he has voted that you think is bad for the country? Well, one of them is one of them is cap and trade. Okay. He apologized for voting for it because so much heat came down on him, but it was something he never should have voted for to begin with on, on principle. Why not? Well, you had started started off talking about um, uh, uh, the ice caps. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yep. I don't know if you're aware. I'm aware. I've been fighting this. I've been in this fight for 30 years to defend the country and the Constitution. There's a an online petition, 32,000 American scientists. They say that oh, there's a consensus, you know, the debate is over, global warming is a fact. There's 32,000 American scientists who have signed a petition stating to a man, there's no such thing as global warming. It's a big fabrication. Right. There's no real science to back it up. Right. 9,000 of them have PhDs, and these, are re- these aren't envi- self-proclaimed environmentalists. These are meteorologists, astrophysicists, oceanographers. These are real hard science. Right. So it's, yeah, it's a scam. Uh, it's a we've discussed this on the show, the fact that the left has co-opted this point to try to use it to create laws that would be harmful to corporations. Their big enemy in life is the private sector. And uh, so... So they've created this false science, and Lobiondo fell for it. Yeah. Global, global problems require global solutions. And what is the institution to deal with global solutions? The United Nations. Ultimately, it's a, it's a scheme to greatly empower the United Nations, which mm-hmm. is, t- is founded totally contrary to the principles upon which America is founded. Right in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal— endowed by their creator, God, with certain and unalienable rights. Right? So, and, and that governments are instituted among men to secure these rights. So the basic premise that America's founded on, that no other nation in the history of mankind, other than possibly ancient Israel, the premise is, one, there is a God. He gives us our rights. That's why they're unalienable, not government. They're not government privileges that government can take them away again, but they're unalienable because they come from God, and that the sole purpose of government is to protect those rights. So the understanding is, in, in looking at virtually any piece of legislation, governments are instituted among men to secure these rights, driving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So if I, as an individual, do not have a God-given right to take your money to fight the noble cause of global warming <laughs> or for prairie dog habitat in Wyoming or foreign aid or whatever noble cause, if I don't have a God-given right to reach in your pocket by force and take your money, then neither could government have been delegated that right from us. So, Peter, you're telling me that government can steal? The government can steal? No, it can't. It shouldn't be able to, no, but when, it can. It, it well, actually— they, they do it under the color of law, and when they right, do it, they're not only right. violating the Constitution, but they're violating the Ten Commandments. So what so they're, they're doing is immoral. On both levels. Right. Now, what about the uh, activists— uh, activist judges, Peter, who are really uh, taking the power out of Congress and away from the electorate. There again, the Constitution, Article 1, Section 1, all legislative powers reside in the Congress. So if anyone knows any algebra, if all legis- all lawmaking power resides with the Congress, then how much is with the Supreme Court? None. 
How much is with the president and his executive orders and signing statements? None. But Congress lacks two things. They lack one, the understanding of that which they swear a solemn oath to uphold and defend. They don't have a clue what it says. The second thing is that they lack is a backbone to stand up to the Supreme Court, to the president, to the lobbyists, to the major media, and so on. And the reason they don't is because they don't fear God. They're more afraid of the major media than they are of God. And what happens, what benefits happen if we elect people like you who do support the Constitution? You begin to get results. What kind of results? Well, uh, let's say in most of your listeners, I'm guessing, are a Christian, a Christian show. Mm-hmm. Uh, abortion is a big issue. Okay. Since Roe versus Wade, so many so-called pro-life legislators are elected and re-elected and re-elected because the people believe their platform, oh, we're pro-life. Well, it's right in the Constitution. The Congress has the authority to limit the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. So mm-hmm. since Roe versus Wade, Congress has had the authority to tell the Supreme Court, no, you'll not hear any cases on abortion. Return it to the states where pro-life groups have an equal level playing field to fight it and at least stop the abomination in some of the states. Right. But do they do that? No. Because if they did, then their ticket to re-election would end. And they mm-hmm. wouldn't want that. So there, and Ron Paul has introduced legislation, the Sanctity of Life Act, that does exactly that, calls for the limita- limiting of the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. But only a handful have signed on to it. Frank Lobiondo is not one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, um, the CONCON that you're chairman I'm of. Glad, I'm glad you mentioned that. So what's the big CONCON? Okay, there's a people are so fed up. And this is a danger for the Tea Party movement. They, they need to know the Tea Party people, they're full of passion and patriotism, but they're short on understanding the Constitution. I've been in this fight a long time. When Congressman Lobiondo was an assemblyman, okay, this was back 1993, there was a bill pending in the state legislature calling for a constitutional convention under the pretense of a balanced budget amendment. Let me back up a little bit so people understand what I'm talking about. There are two ways to change the Constitution. One is through an amendment, such as a balanced budget amendment, you know, to change like that. Balanced budget amendment is real popular. Uh, calls for uh, term limits is real popular. People fed up with career politicians. We need term limits. Okay. There are two ways to change, change the Constitution. One is through an amendment. Now, what congressman is going to vote for term limits to boot himself out of office? No one. Okay. Right. So the only other route provided through the Constitution to change the Constitution is called an Article Five convention. There's only been one convention, constitutional convention, the history of America was 1787 when the Articles of Confederation went into convention to be amended. But the delegates to a a constitutional convention have total authority, total latitude. And what those delegates decided to do was to scrap the Articles of Confederation and give us an entirely new document. By the grace of God, these were men who had just defeated the British at great personal sacrifice or God-fearing men that gave us our present constitution. But if that were to happen today... It would be a shark-feeding socialist frenzy on a Bill of Rights. Another document has already been prepared. It's called the state's Consti- New States Constitution. It's waiting in the wings to replace our present Constitution. We're only a couple of states away. 34 states calling for a CONCON are required. We're only a couple of states away. The New States Constitution is patterned after the Soviet Constitution and the UN Charter. God is out of the equation. Mm-hmm. Now, what I was saying was... In 1993, when Frank was an assemblyman, this bill was pending in the state legislature. He sat in my kitchen for 20 minutes as I went over quotations from constitutional scholars, all the way from James Madison to Chief Justice Warren Berger, and about two dozen quotations. 
explaining the extreme danger of a constitutional convention. And he sat nodding his head, nodding his head. Yeah, he understood, he understood. And, and then he went and voted for it anyway. And I called mm-hmm. him up that morning after the vote. And I said, Frank, you knew that this bill was to scrap the United States Constitution. Why did you vote for this thing? And his answer was, well, what would people have thought if they read in the paper that I voted against a balanced budget amendment? So he was more concerned about winning re-election to the Assembly than he was about defending the United States Constitution. This was something that was included in the balanced it's budget? It's the nature of the bill. It where a state would pass a resolution mm. to propose an amendment, but they're doing it in such a way as to call for an Article 5 convention, mm. which is we're going to totally open up Pandora's box. This is, the, this is what we hope would be addressed. But there's no guarantee, there's no restrictions on the delegates that they even need to consider a balanced budget amendment or term limits. So it's, okay. it's a very dangerous thing. This almost sounds like it's uh, foundational before a new world order can really be yeah. established. Yeah, you might, I think of it as the, as the doomsday button that, that the founders put in the Constitution. If I, had, if I can go back a couple hundred years and be a founder, I would fight to get that thing out because it literally is a doomsday button. Mm-hmm. Peter, what about the economy? What, what do you have uh, on your side that you would do about the economy? The Constitution is real clear. It says Congress shall coin money and set the value thereof, meaning we're supposed to have gold and silver coin, or if it's paper money, it's backed by gold and silver. That authority was given by the founders to Congress. 1913, actually December 23rd, to figure the day before Christmas Eve, that night, Congress pushed through the Federal Reserve Act, and what they did was unconstitutionally transferred the, the authority that was entrusted to them by the founders over our money to a group of private bankers calling, calling themselves, deceptively calling themselves the Federal Reserve. They've got, they're in no way connected with the federal government. They're private bankers. Since then, we've gradually been taken off of gold and silver, and now our money is backed by paper and printing presses. Now, in the event America has to fight a war, and we need money, right? Congress declares war because they haven't declared war since the Second World War, but assuming we have to fight a war, we need a billion dollars. Congress has to go now to the Treasury. Treasury goes to the Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve says, sure, we'll, we'll, cre- we'll create the money. They create the money out of thin air. Then they loan it to us and charge us interest. Now, if you put yourself in the position of one of those Federal Reserve bankers, every time that you can involve America in a war, you'd make a fortune. You create the money out of thin air, loan it to us, and draw interest on it. Wars, foreign aid, fight global warming, anything that causes us to spend and waste money to borrow on our children and grandchildren. Who are we borrowing from? Communist China, the most bloodthirsty regime in the history of humanity. They're a creditor. Borrower is servant to the lender. We're in deep, America's in deep stuff. All right, Peter, well, how can people get a a hold of you and help you with your campaign? www.boyceyourchoice.com, B-O-Y-C-E, boyceyourchoice.com, catchy slogan. Or call me on my cell phone, 609-501-3351. If I get elected, I'm not going there to get along. I'm going there to save a country and stand before God and have him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Wonderful. Peter, thank you you for being my guest. Yes, thank you very much. All right. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And we are going to turn our attention now to the topic of the day, which is about moral relativism. And I pulled out a quote here that I thought was very apropos. I've been holding on to this for a couple of weeks now to show um, 
to to give to the audience. But uh, it's wound up that we have it for today, and it just fits in with the topic of the day, since we're going to be talking about morals and ethics and uh, how do we know the difference between right and wrong and the most popular system of morals today or ethical system, moral relativism. Well, here's a quote from an English philosopher by the name of Hastings Randall, and it says, quote, On a non-theistic view of the universe, okay, meaning atheistic, right, back to the quote, the moral law cannot well be thought of as having any actual existence. The objective validity of the moral law can indeed be, and no doubt is, asserted, believed in, and acted upon without reference to any theological creed, but it cannot be defended or fully justified without the presupposition of theism. So, fancy talk, but what he's basically saying is, yes, you can talk about being moral, you can talk about being good or following a moral system, but that's just talk. There isn't any actual foundational basis for it as objective unless it's based in theism. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Great. So um, what will be the notes we're using today are from a book written by Greg Kokel and Francis Beckwith called Relativism, Relativism Feet Planted Firmly in Midair, which I read maybe three or four years ago. It's an excellent book, probably the best on this topic for the layperson. Talks about moral relativism and how it's infected our society and what to do about it. So it's he Greg gives this very interesting story where he talks about a time he was at a chiropractic office and he engages one of the young ladies there in the office in this uh question. He's just kind of asking and seeing how she would answer certain questions. So he asks her about whether morality is objective or not. Okay, well, he was surprised. She asked him, what is morality? Okay, well, he decided to give her an example and give her something easy uh, for as an example. So he said, well, for example, is murder wrong? And she said, I don't know. So he gave her this really easy question, and she didn't know. So he thought, well, I'll give her an even easier one. So he asked her, is it right to torture babies for fun? And she says, well, I wouldn't want them to do that to my baby. Now, that's very interesting, Keith, because suddenly her focus became her personal preference and still she did not answer the question. That's right. So she didn't She didn't uh, think that morals were objective. She just talked about her own preference. She wouldn't prefer it. So that just goes to show that this moral relativism that we're talking about has really deeply infected at least the way people talk about morals. Now, uh, Greg... Uh, gives her the benefit of the doubt that he says that, you know, if you probably woke her up in the middle of the night and said, oh, I hear the neighbor across the street is torturing her baby, she would undoubtedly dial 911. So she would undoubtedly actually think that it was morally wrong to do that. She wouldn't just roll over 
and go back to sleep and say, oh, well, I hope they don't do that to my baby. She would actually. So, you know, we have to give people the benefit of the doubt sometimes. But it's an amazing thing that she would actually say that, that like morals are a flavor of ice cream. Yeah, and the problem that we have is that our children are coming through a school system where they're not really being taught to think. They're not no. being taught to question. They're not being taught to think objectively. In fact, they're taught that moral relativism is correct. Uh, that is correct, and that everybody should decide for themselves, and there's no objective moral truth. In fact, we find this in a day and age in a culture when the Ten Commandments are being taken out of uh, courtrooms and taken out of the schoolrooms. Right. So this is the power of relativism, and it has truly infected the society at large. So let's give a, a definition then. Relativism can be defined as the fact that truth depends on the subject and not the object. Okay? So as an example, now we're talking about truth in general, not, not just moral truth more specifically. So let's, let's look at it generally. Um, relativism is truth depends on the subject and not the object. So, Mike, if I say that there's a chair next to me. Mm -hmm. And there is a chair next to you. That's absolutely true. Okay. So um, is that dependent on the object, the chair, or is it dependent on you, the subject? It's the object. Well, what, what if you don't think there's a chair there? Well, if I don't think there's a chair there, there's not a chair there, even though really? there might be one there. Really? So you're a relativist. I am not a relativist. Okay. So then you think that truth is not according to you. I think that truth is objective. Okay. okay. So even if you thought there wasn't a chair there, it wouldn't matter. There would still be a chair there. You can still see the chair. It's still there, even though you say it's not there. I, th I thought we were playing a, uh, a game there. Yes. you an, were An argumentative, yes. argumentative game. That's right. Yeah, okay. You're playing devil's advocate. Okay. So so um, so let's look then. Okay, so that's the idea of truth in general. Then there's this subset of truth called moral truth. And it also has two versions, moral objectivism or moral relativism. So the, the broader view is that there's no truth at all. And that, of course, has actually infected society quite a bit, too. This is where you get politicians saying things like, well, that depends on what the definition of is is, and things that truth is in the eye of the beholder, or whatever you want, that's your truth. But we're going to be dealing with moral relativism. Now, this is really important for Christians because the gospel, the good news, the New Testament talks about Jesus doing something real, something objective, that he saves us from sin, all right? So sin is object, an objective or a violation of objective morals. Now, if morals turn out to be really relativistic, then Jesus didn't really save us from anything. There isn't any objective moral. We, we haven't done anything objectively wrong, Correct. We've only if, done things subjectively. Yeah, if there, if there is no moral truth, then 
I committed no moral wrong, and therefore I don't I d- need a savior. You don't need a savior. And we actually see this infecting the church sometimes when people will talk about what Jesus did for me subjectively, but nothing about any of the objective things, like the objective moral laws that I broke and that he forgave me, but actually, you know, Jesus makes me feel good type of thing, and that's why I'm a Christian, because Jesus does something for me subjectively. So that's this, again, this objective versus subjective. So relativism is, in fact, impacting the church quite a bit. There was even a study that showed that 92% of born-again youth think that truth is relative. That is very, very shocking, because if you think truth is relative, you think Christianity is relative, and it's just a matter of whatever you want to believe is true. Very, very scary. So basically, uh, all 32 flavors uh, of Baskin-Robbins ice cream, they're still ice cream. You can pick your flavor of choice and That's right. and feel good about it and stimulate your taste buds. And, and Christianity is just one of those flavors. It's a shame. Well, the New Testament actually gives us examples that show us that it supports the idea of objective truth. For instance, Jesus frequently gave people that he met the truth, right? They would ask him questions, and he would tell them the truth or give them the truth, even things that they didn't really want to know about. He would tell them the objective truth. Same in Acts, the apostles gave people the truth that they needed to be saved. Okay, not just what you want to hear or whatever you believe, it's what you objectively need to know in order to be saved. And unfortunately, Keith, you know, one of the things that's uh, occurred in today's church in the United States is that by and large the church is starting to think the same way, same way the world thinks. In fact, recent studies have demonstrated that the divorce rate in the churched people is approximating that of the unchurched people. And it's sad. And Christians often lack the courage to confront what is the truth. Right, right. They're influenced by the culture to be tolerant, to be loving. Not that those things are bad, but they do it in order to fit in, right? We should just all tolerate each other. Don't speak the truth, just tolerate each other. And the problem, you know, once you get into political correctness and tolerance is that you know, the, the stakes are really too high because souls are hanging in the balance. Right. You know, you're going to tolerate their sin or tolerate their lifestyle in the name of tolerance and political correctness, but guess what? They're going to miss the boat. Right. Yeah, There you, you see people that too often have the attitude within the church that, you know, Jesus maybe isn't even the only way to God, you know, or as an example that Mormons are Christians, you know, let's just tolerate them, let's just let them in, even though objectively there are clear distinctions, but we're just going to go with the flow so that we can be comfortable. And and that seems to be the New Age mantra in that there are many, many ways to the mountaintop, many ways right. to God. Right. And uh, and then, then you get into an argument with somebody, well, no, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And then they start hammering you with, oh, you're, you're so intolerant and, you know, uh, you're a nice guy, but you're just so intolerant. Yep. So, so if our goal is just to please people, um, then we're no different than the society around us, and we'll never be able to change that society. And Jesus started a revolution 2,000 years ago, and it's our job to uh, continue it on. Uh, just a reminder, folks, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And I'm Keith Kendricks. And you can call us at 609-398-1020. Um, or you can um, email us uh, for questions uh, that we can answer either later today or in a future uh, pod- uh, podcast or broadcast. All right, Mike, we have got about 20, a little over 20 minutes left in the show. So let's talk about the main point of the book by Kokel and Beckwith about moral relativism. And they describe three different types of moral relativism. Now, they describe it in a very interesting way, and the chapters are broken down this way. One, they say, society does relativism. And this is the idea that moral rules come from just the way cultures are, and different cultures have different morals, and so that's what's right for one culture is not necessarily right for the other culture. The second way that relativism is described is what they say, society says relativism. And by this they mean that moral relativism can be a type of moral relativism where whatever the society says, whatever its laws it creates, those are what are right as opposed to wrong. And then the third way of doing uh, moral relativism is... I say relativism. Yeah, I say relativism. Mm -hmm. That is, me personally, what I think is right that is what is right. If I say it's right for me, it's right for me. And that's where you get this very popular saying, what's right for me is right for me, and, and or what's right for you is not necessarily right for me. And this is the most deeply entrenched uh, type of relativism and probably the most dangerous. Absolutely. So going back to the first one, then, this is society does relativism. Now let's take a look, a closer look at that. So a typical name for this would be cultural relativism. Or descriptive relativism, and typically it's an anthropological kind of a claim, um, and it's basically descriptive of the ways that different uh, cultures um, have different moralities because the culture and the morality are intertwined. Right, and you get examples would be when Margaret Mead was studying the Samoans, and she, uh, it's we now know she doctored her study and manipulated the data, data to try to show that Samoans were actually this uh, people who were very sexually liberated. And so she said that this was the natural way human beings ought to be, and we in the United States were ought to be also sexually liberated. And so she, so she was, uh, again, another case of a scientist uh, deliberately falsifying data in order to get their point across. So, so the claim is that, you know, we in the United States, we used to think that morality was objective, but that was before we got smart and sent uh, anthropologists out to study all these other cultures and realized that, uh, that there are all these other moral practices out there. And now we can see that, in fact, morals differ across cultures and so, therefore, morality is just a function of culture. You know what I find really interesting about this, Keith? What? The only hot button in the media today relative to this cultural relativism, where society does relativism, is the way the Muslim culture treats their women. Oh, yeah. That's a hot topic. Well, you don't... The, the culture, um, our news media, completely avoids this. You know, they don't want to point out that... They can say, "Oh well, this is this is clearly wrong," 
because then that would imply some kind of objective morality. That's correct. So it's all hushed up. Do you see the women's rights activists? Are they complaining about the women are treated in Saudi Arabia, treated like property? Not a word. No essays, no um, editorials, no podcasts, nothing. Interesting. Very interesting. So how do we respond to these um, these claims, Keith? All right. Well, the first is kind of obvious, uh, and it's that even though those observations might be true, okay, the observation that different cultures have different morals, it's what we call in logic a non sequitur. All right. It doesn't therefore follow. It doesn't mean that no one has any kind of objective morals that are correct or right. So um, let's give you an example. Uh, we are, uh, my wife and I are balancing our checkbook, and we both come up with different balances. But what does that prove? Does that prove that, there, that neither one of us is right? One of that you is wrong. At least one of us is wrong. Mm-hmm. That's certainly true. Mm-hmm. But actually, both of us could be wrong. Mm-hmm. There still could be a third correct sum. Right, an objective sum. So, so just because she and I differ about what that ought to be doesn't mean there is no right answer. So that's the first obvious reply that just because cultures differ doesn't mean that there isn't an objective moral truth out there. You know, sometimes it's um, not so clear when there's such a wide diversity of morals, Keith. Um, there may be difference over facts, but not values. Right, so that's the second reply then that there isn't truly any difference over the values it's just differences of details or differences of facts yeah one of the examples a great example there would be uh comparing and contrasting the pro-life and the pro-choice people both groups hold to the value that which that we should not take the lives of innocent human beings right okay where they differ however is what they count as a human being or a person. Right. You know? Exactly right. So it's more of the facts, the physical facts, as opposed to the moral itself that you ought not to take the life of an innocent human being. Another example that C.S. Lewis uses in Mere Christianity is the idea of marriage. You know, in our country, marriage ought to be one man and one woman, but in another country, it might be you can have four wives. So... There, the difference is more one of detail. You know, you ought to be married, you ought to control yourself, but you can stay at least within this boundary of these four women. So, again, uh, saying that there can be objective agreement about general values while there's differences in detail. And what about the uh, the beef analogy in the Hindu culture? Right. You know, one of, one of the problems that they have is that cows are held to be sacred, and it might be the reincarnate substance of grandma. So they right, that's do why not, they don't want to eat cows. That's correct. So they won't eat beef, whereas in other cultures they can eat beef. So isn't that a direct difference then? Well, no. They, the people who eat beef in other countries and cultures don't think that grandma's part of the cow business. Exactly. So, so their actual agreement is over that it's not right to eat grandma. Correct. Right? So right. it's just a detail of whether grandma happens to be reincarnated in the cow or not. Right. So, so again, so, that's, so that really, those two responses, I think, completely obliterate uh, the idea of 
society does relativism or cultural relativism. So, so let's move on to the second type of relativism. That's society says relativism. Another name for this would be conventionalism, and that's kind of the idea that the state or the culture or the um, laws or what we kind of vote on, if we vote on it, that's the way it is. Mm. So how do we how do we respond to this, Keith? Um, because you know you just can't have an immoral society, right? So how do you, how do you deal with somebody who's coming up with society says relativism? Okay, well one of the problems is that um, in this view, in this view of that a society makes up its own morals. That means that you can't then, you can't have an immoral society. There wouldn't be any such thing. Every society would be, by definition, a moral society because it's making up its own morals and whatever morals it makes up, those are right for it. So there's no such thing as an immoral society. You would never be able to critique another society or state from the outside. Mm. So an example would be the Nuremberg trials of the Nazis. And what do you think the Nazis tried to say? It's not our fault, right? They appealed to this idea that we were just doing what we were told. This was right in our um, society. So there was no overarching moral truth by which to judge them if this is true. They wouldn't be. They would be right because that was what their society said. Hmm. So this is a clearly a flaw in that. Yeah, one of the, one of the problems that uh, that we have there is that uh, Hitler's Aryan race was supposed to, to be the supreme race, and of course they wanted to promote that and take over the world, and therefore the outsiders could not condemn them right. for their own internal beliefs. So if this view of moral relativism is true, then you cannot judge the Nazis, right? Even though... I think everybody listening to us would agree that what they did was entirely immoral. So we can we can say that uh, uh, conventionalism or society says moral uh, relativism is false. But uh, another answer is that you wouldn't be able to critique your own society. Mm. Okay, think about that. Right, the society that you're living in, if it's true, it actually be immoral to stand up and say, hey, what you're doing, America, is wrong, that itself would be immoral, right? Doesn't that follow? If society can make up its own rules and whatever rules it makes up, those are right for it. So let's say America, then, whatever rules we make up, those are right. No one inside America could stand up and say, America, you're wrong. You shouldn't do this. In fact, that would be in itself an immoral act. You'd be, you'd be trying to stop America from doing what it was morally right for it. So if that were the case, then you would, it would be impossible to have any moral reformers. You wouldn't have uh, the Gandhis of the world. You wouldn't have the Martin Luther Kings of the world, the people who stood up for people's rights and reformation. Exactly right. So, so again, a very shocking idea that moral reformers like Jesus or Gandhi would— would say, uh, we would have to say they were immoral people. All right, let's look at, uh, we've got about uh, 10 or 11 minutes left. So let's take a look at the final 
aspect of moral relativism, and this is the one that we kind of meet the most at the barber shop or at the line at the coffee shop. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the kind of thing we say we see. If you're just joining us, uh, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. You can call in at 609-398-1020. All right, so what is it about I say relativism? I believe in relativism. Well, I say relativism basically is subjectivism. It's what the subject himself believes, and it's it's very deeply entrenched, and it's what kids are being taught in the public school system, uh, and it's probably the most dangerous kind of relativism that we see. Yeah, it's almost the most relative of the types of relativism because now we're not saying that a culture uh, set it up or a history of a culture set it up, uh, and we're not even saying that a state or, you know, vote by popular decree can set something up. Now we're saying that whatever the individual says is right is right. So a real extreme view of relativism, but really one that has really taken hold in the population at at large. So let's look at some of the flaws with this system. What are the flaws with this kind of moral relativism that we that we meet when if you go to a cocktail party you're going to run into this kind of relativism? Well, one one of the things is that if if morality is truly relative, then a relativist can never ever say that something is wrong in and of itself. Okay. That is to say that they can't claim something is intrinsically or objectively wrong for all people. That's right. So, so you can never, in, in, in other words, if you're a relative, you really can't hold things very strongly, right? You, you can't, um, if you believe uh, that people shouldn't pollute. Okay, well, if you're a, a relativist, a moral relativist, you can't even hold that very strongly. Uh, you may, it's just you saying... I don't prefer pollution, or I don't like pollution. You're not even actually saying anything objective about pollution itself. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Exactly. Okay. The second, second flaw, then, is that relativists can't complain about the problem of evil. Now, we've talked about the problem of evil in the past. The idea is that there are moral evils out there, and if God is a powerful God, all-powerful God, and a morally perfect God, a loving God, he would want to stop people from doing moral evil. Well, if you are a relativist, for you there isn't any objective moral evil. What would it mean to say that uh, God ought to do something. He ought to stop someone from doing what? That's just what they believe is their moral uh, right to do. Yeah, they're, they can do whatever they please, and they have a choice. So if they want to commit a crime, they can do that in their own brain, You know, whether it's going to be raping your sister or, or stealing from the store next door. Right. It's what they needed at the time, and it's okay. So even though moral relativists will raise this as a problem for Christianity, and people intend this to mean that there, you know, that there is real moral evil in the world, uh, it be- it becomes uh, inconsistent, right? 
you have to believe in order there for there to be a problem of evil, you have to believe uh, that evil is a real thing and not relative to the individual. Mm. So a, an example like Columbine High School, mm. uh, was that real evil? Well, not to the moral relativist. To the moral relativist, that was just two high school kids, two atheists, deciding that they were going to do what they wanted to do, that they, they thought this was the right thing to do. And so according to moral relativism, I say relativism, that was right, because that was what they thought was right. Sad. Well, a third, a third fatal flaw, Keith, for the uh, I say relativism uh, is that relativists can never place blame or accept praise. Now, let me give you some examples. All right. I think that everybody knows the example of, uh, of Mother Teresa mm-hmm. and what she did in Calcutta and, and how she sacrificed her entire life to serve these people. Right. Okay. And, and every one of us could say that uh, Mother Teresa did an outstanding job uh, in her capacity as a, a Catholic nun to help prevent the pain and suffering there. But a relativist can't say that what she did was great. Or they good. can't, they can't yeah. heap praise on her right? because it was good for her, but it wasn't necessarily good for, for them. You know, or good, good for anybody. Well, it was good for the people, but they, they can't actually give her praise right? because, you know, it's, it's just relative. Right. There's no objective goodness or badness. So um, praising or blaming another is making a moral judgment. If I say, wow, what you did was really morally good— well, that doesn't make any sense. I'm just saying I personally preferred what you did. but It's per- personal so, preference. So what? Yes. So on this view, there's nothing for which to praise or even blame someone else. Mm. It's just your own opinion. All right. The fourth flaw is that rel- relativists can't claim anything is unfair or unjust. Again, this is similar to what we just talked about. You know, there's these concepts of fairness that we all innately have, and we appeal to people on behalf of their sense of fairness. We do this all the time on their sense of justice. When we talk about, uh, when we read in the newspaper about crimes that have been committed, we think with our sense of justice that this ought to be um, taken care of, that the criminal ought to be tracked down and held to account to a sense of justice. Or, you know, even if you're in line with at the coffee house talking to somebody uh, and they're trying to convince you that morals are just relative, well, the moment somebody cuts in front of them, what are they going to say to you? Yeah, they're they're going to say, say, hey, Buster, hey, get, unf- the back, get in the back of the line. All right, what that's you did unfair. There was wrong. It's, it's wrong. unfair, right. So there's this obvious intuitive sense of fairness and justice that we have that imply objective standards of morals, but the relatives, relativists truly can't claim that because um, they believe that moral right and wrong is just whatever you decide. So the person decided it was right to cut in front of you, and that's his personal mm. morals. Yeah, the fifth, fifth fatal flaw with the arguments that uh, relativists use is this one. Um, relativists cannot improve their own morality. Um, okay, how now, do you mean? Well, if if you and I are going to go bowling and we're going to join a league, the more we practice, the better our bowling game gets. Right. Okay. I mean, that's just intuitive. The more exposure. Except for me, 
Well, <laughs> well maybe maybe bowling was a bad uh, a bad example. Maybe it's <laughs> golf. Maybe it's baseball, football, whatever. All right. But something by which you can measure a standard, you know, your score. You know, whether okay. it's uh, hitting a, a 90 on the golf course and then the next day, you, you know, you hit in the 80s and so forth, improving your score on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the relativists, they don't have a standard against which to improve. So my gutter balls would be just as good as a strike? You got it. Oh, I like this system. Yeah. That sounds good for me. So if relativism is true, then there's a problem with, with the standards. They, they don't believe that there are standards. And so you can never improve. Correct. So unless I guess I hit more gutter balls. Exactly. So, yeah. So there, there's no way to improve, and you can't be held to any kind of way of improvement. What would it mean for me to tell you, hey, you ought to improve in this manner. You ought to be kinder to people. You're being judgmental. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I have my own morals. Yeah. Yeah. Get away from me with your, uh, your sick morals about being kind to others. Disgusting. All right. Uh, let's see. I guess we have time for another flaw here. Flaw number six, relativists cannot be ha- or have meaningful moral discussions. Now, how is that possible? I well, mean, they're listening if, to us. If there's no such thing as a common good. Yeah. Okay, like an objective. Dis- yeah, then such discussions, whether it's polit- politics or any other thing, are meaningless. Give me an example. Um... Well, how about the common good of people shouldn't break into homes and steal their stuff? Is that a common good? That is a common good. So we good. can discuss things like the kinds of laws that there ought to be. When does the person entering endanger himself? When can you shoot him or not? We can have those kinds of discussions. But what about in relativism? Can you have those kinds of discussions? Well, no, because it's going to be very hard for them to defend. Um, let's say if the intrusion, the break-in happened in their own home then they're, they're going to have a completely different slant on it. And the problem is they can talk all they want. What if I think it's but, right but to walking break into it, your home? Well, I want stuff. I'm hungry. I need your food. See, there, you, you don't even get to a point of having any kind of discussion because there's not even a shared moral good that it would be wrong to break into somebody's home. It could even be right, right? It's just whatever you decide for yourself. Well, oh, there's the music. Oh, okay. Well, we were just about at the end anyways. So so that is moral relativism. You know, when you hear it in a conversation, it sounds so ambiguous and squishy that it's hard to, it's hard to really nail it down. Yeah, but the, the real problem, Keith, in a nutshell, is this. If you're practicing moral relativism... Nothing is wrong, nothing is evil, nothing is good for all people. There's no accountability, there's no meaningful moral discourse, and there's no moral tolerance. The bottom line is that people who practice relativism are doing it because they have a a selfish desire to satisfy their own needs and their own greeds. Right. They want autonomy. They want to be do their own thing. Heard that before. Well... Uh, You've been listening to Evidence for Faith. This is the show where we teach you about Christianity that teaches objective morals that you can learn to improve and better yourself. If you'd like to hear more about that, 
Remember to listen to us every Sunday at 4 p.m. And remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. That